And so the next day he gets his one-on-one with the Roshi and Roshi goes, well, did you think about it? And he says, yeah. It, he said, I even looked it up. It's father. Why have you forsaken me? And the Roshi goes, no, rings his bell. He leaves. And so this goes on for the whole, like, I don't know how many days the retreat was. Probably It's probably a five-day retreat. That's pretty typical. And so on the last day, he comes in to have his one-on-one with the Roshi. And the Roshi goes, well, what do you, what do you think? Did you Do you have anything else to say? And he goes, no. He says, I know that's what he said. What is it you're looking for from me? And this little Japanese guy leans back and throws his arms open and yells to the heavens, which I'm not going to do because I don't want to blow out everybody's radios when you're listening to this. Father, why have you forsaken me? You know, and he says this with all his power and emotion and tears streaming down his eyes. And the priest gets, ah, he wanted me to know what that was, you know, to feel that for myself, to experience that, that that's the depth of this sacrifice and to make this connection there and so he walked out going you know this little japanese guy was trying to make me a better christian thanks for joining us for another episode of what the faith uh you know allison and i since we've grown up in america it's uh we're very accustomed to western faith we've uh, learned about the bible growing up learned about jesus and god and um it's really part of the amazing part of what the faith is that we've been able to expand our knowledge of other religions, including Eastern religions. And we're still at the bottom of this very huge mountain that uh, is so foreign to us of learning about Buddhism and Hinduism, these Eastern faiths. And uh, fortunately, we were able to connect with Sensei Morris Sullivan um, as he really, he was the perfect person to kind of help us through some of the baby steps of learning the the basics of Buddhism. Part of the reason is he's written a book on it, which I highly recommend his book is Wisdom, Compassion, Serenity, First Steps to the Buddhist Path. And it's an introductory guide to the Buddhist practice. He uh, Not only has he written that book, but he is a minister in the Jodo School of Japanese Pure Land Buddhism and a recognized Dharma teacher in a Vietnamese Rinzai Zen lineage. Uh, he is also the spiritual head of the Volusia Buddhist Fellowship in D-Land, Florida. Now, he lives there with his wife and his two dogs and his cat, and uh, even in his free time, he uh, plays in his garage rock band, and uh, also, uh, I'm going to pause there, lives in D-Land, Florida with his wife, Michelle, and his two dogs and his cat. Uh, he even helps oversee amateur Tai Chi tournaments, um, which is, I just think it's so cool that he is able to take in so much of this culture and he uses it to really help people over here that don't know about Buddhism and don't understand this Eastern faith that so, that takes up so much of the population of the world and really simplifies it for us and helps it helps us understand it. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Morris was a delightful human being and I think you're going to enjoy what he has to say. kind of trendy and fashionable these days actually it's you know it's one of the fastest growing religions in the u.s and or in, in the west in general um and a lot of it is because of the interest in meditation and contemplative practices more generally um and so a lot of people come to buddhism who may not be particularly interested in the religion but are interested in some of the practices which is fine because you know, every religion has uh, an element of practice and an element of faith. And so if you ask a typical Christian minister, for example, you know, if, if you said, I don't know anything about Christianity, what is it? He would probably say, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, you know, it, which is a statement of belief, right? Statement of faith. This is what we believe in. Whereas with Buddhism, it's much more of it's much more a path of practice. So the Buddha was a human being. Um, this, this is actually a little bit more complicated than that, but but generally speaking, the you know Buddhism was founded by a human being named Gotama, who was born in India about 2,600 years ago, um, and decided that um, 
and, and he was very wealthy. He was uh, a person of privilege and wealth. And his father, you know, wanted to give him everything he could. And so uh, the Buddha had a, had a pretty uh, luxurious lifestyle. Uh, and so he, uh, but he recognized that despite his wealth and despite his privilege, that he was going to experience birth and death and illness and old age and all of these unpleasant things. And that there was no way around that. And then he found that there were people who were living a spiritual life, a holy life, trying to find a way out of the cycle of coming and going. So, you know, in India uh, back then and even now, it's kind of generally accepted that that there's rebirth. Buddhism sees, you know, talks about rebirth and reincarnation a little bit differently. We talk about rebirth. You know, I'm going into all of the subtle, the semantic differences there. But basically, um, you know, India in 500 years, 600 years BC was not a pleasant place. You know, being born meant you were going to experience some very, very difficult things. And so um, he found that there were people who were trying to get out of that cycle. And so he decided that he would go and, and see if he could figure out how to do that. Uh, and at the time, there, there were a number of ascetics, again, still are. So if you ever visit India, you'll find people who are living very ascetic lifestyles. And the idea was that if you, if you deprived yourself enough, um, put yourself through enough difficulty that you might stop creating negative karma that would bring you back. And so you transcend the cycle of coming and going by basically starving yourself, standing on one leg, staring at the sun, things like that. And so the Buddha was doing these things. And I'm referring to him as the Buddha because we're talking about him as from this perspective, at the time he was not the Buddha. He was Gotama. He was, a, he was an ascetic. Um, so he, he, he really uh, found some very good teachers, learned what they had to teach about meditation, wasn't enlightened, found some ascetic teachers, started studying, you know, practicing asceticism, almost starved himself to death, realized this isn't going to get me where I want to go. And so he um, <clears throat> began to take meals again, got his, his strength back, sat down beneath the tree, determined to sit there and, and meditate until he was awakened. And after a week, uh, approximately, he, he was enlightened. And so um, and what he was enlightened to <clears throat> was a path out of suffering. And so if you, you know, if you read the, the academic uh, explanation of Buddhism, there's always the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path. So the first truth is just if you're born, you're going to experience difficulties. A lot of the time, the, you know, the textbooks will say all life is suffering. Well, that's not really what the Buddha said. If you're born, you're going to experience some, some difficulties. And the stresses and, and uh, so on of life have a cause. That's the second truth. The third truth is that if there's a cause, there's a remedy. And the fourth truth is that the remedy is this path of practice, which is an eightfold path, but I'm going to, I'm going to make it a little easier to remember is basically seeing things as they are and resolving to live in a, in a way um, that will get you out of the cycle of suffering. So that's developing wisdom and discernment. And then living in a way that is non-harmful and is compassionate toward yourself and all, and all other beings. And then training the mind so that you learn to let go of patterns of thinking that lead to difficulty, cultivate patterns of thinking that lead to happiness. And, and basically that is the path of practice. And he said, if you do these things, then you'll get out of the cycle of coming and going. So, you know, the Buddha was trying to find a way out of, you know, birth and rebirth. But the, the method of practice 
which is, you know, sums up and, you know, do good, avoid evil, train your mind. Don't do the things that lead to stress, do the things that lead to happiness. That works even if you're trying to transcend the normal day-to-day -day stress of living in a crazy world where there's a global pandemic or just, you know, having a job that is not any fun and all of those things. But <clears throat> the, you could sum up the training with the realization that the, the difficulties that we experience, the suffering we experience, is primarily the result of the way the mind engages with reality. Circumstances are essentially neutral, um, but what we do with the mind, how we re respond to what comes into our awareness determines what our experience of life is gonna be like. So a lot of people, you know, find out a little, you know, read a little bit about Buddhism and they see some of those things and they go, well, that makes a lot of sense. Let me see if I can learn how to do this practice. Um, and it's totally okay with us if you're a Christian or Jewish or Baha'i or whatever, and you want to practice Buddhism, we're, we're completely okay with that. And so you get a lot of people who are, um, you know, sort of in this dual faith position, Christians who practice Buddha, who consider themselves also Buddhist, Jewish Buddhists, and so on. And so there's a couple of books um, that really explore the intersection of Christianity and Buddhism, for example. So let me take a breath. <laughs> where, where would you like me to go from here? I mean, that's kind of sums up what the. What I feel the like that was is. a great, that was a great explanation of just kind of like the basic teachings of Buddhism. Cause I think it's really helps like set the, set the foundation, set the scene, set the scene. <laughs> um, and actually that was extremely helpful, um, yeah. you know, for me and, and I am like really interested in, and maybe we can get into it later, but that kind of intersection between Buddhism and other faiths, um, cause I do know personally a few Christian Buddhists and Jewish Buddhists. Um, but I think just to kind of get started, I'd love to go back to, um, you know, maybe the beginning of your journey, um, what faith looks like for you in your childhood. And then ultimately how, uh, you came to learn about Buddhism and became a Buddhist. Okay, sure. So I'm 64 years old. Uh, and when I was, uh, when I was a kid, I got really interested in music and uh, my original career plan was that I was going to be the fifth Beatle, uh, which didn't work out. But since I was going to do this, you know, when the, the Beatles went to India to study meditation and so did a lot of other relatively well-known people. And so I thought, well, I should learn something about this meditation stuff. And so I was looking into that. I was raised Baptist, so um, I'm going to tell this story. I'm not disparaging Baptists. I, some of my best friends are Baptists, okay? But, and probably if this had happened at a different time and in a different place, I might have ended up going in a different direction. But the church that I grew up in was pretty conservative. And I was living at a time, I was coming of age at a time when the civil rights movement was very much in in full swing, and when there was a war in Vietnam, and there was, and the anti-war movement was gaining some steam when I was about 11, 12, 13 years old, and so I thought war was a bad thing, and I thought equal rights was a good thing, and the, it, it appeared to me that the religion that I belonged to, that my ancestors belonged to, um, thought, completely differently. They seem to like war and not like equal rights. And so I started, there was a moment when I think I was about 13 years old um, and was visiting my grandparents. My grandfather was a deacon at the Baptist church in this little town in Texas where they, where we lived, where they lived. And um, they started talking about how a, a black family had shown up at their church and how my grandfather and the other deacons had gone over and told them where the black church was and, you know, that they would be more comfortable there. And I said, I didn't think that sounded very Christian. And so I was told to leave the table. So on our way back home after church, after that, um, I told my parents I wouldn't go into church anymore. I didn't feel right. Uh, in that setting. But I didn't lose my interest in religion. 
in general. I, I didn't feel like I had fallen away from God. I just felt like I'd fallen away from the religion of, you know, that particular side of religion. And so I became kind of a seeker. And um, so I was trying to learn to meditate, which there, I, I lived in Lubbock, Texas, and there was pretty much uh, the opportunities to learn meditation for a, you know, a white teenage kid uh, in Lubbock, Texas were few and far between. But I did what I could do uh, to study what I could. And whenever I read anything about Buddhism, it seemed to really make sense. So in the 70s, there were a number of books coming out about Zen. And um, I was reading a lot of them. And I started kind of thinking of myself as, as, as a Zen Buddhist, although I, there was nothing official I could do about that. We moved to Florida. And again, it, when it came to opportunities to practice Buddhism for me, it was, there, was, there weren't any. Um, but I always continued to read and, and try to practice. And um, in the late 80s, uh, there was a Unitarian minister in Orlando who had um, studied with a Vietnamese Zen master named Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh is probably the second best known Buddhist in the world. And she is next to the Dalai Lama. And um, she had big, she had gone to some retreats with him. And so she started a meditation group and they're reading his books and, and practicing his style. And so I, I was going to, um, to those meetings. So that was the first formal training first sitting in a group I ever got. And um, again, I, I kind of identified as Buddhist, but there was nothing official about that. Even, I mean, she couldn't, she wasn't a, an ordained Buddhist monk or anything like that. But I, at least I felt like I was part of a spiritual community at that point. So um, a little after 2000, my wife and I moved to um, where we are now, Deland, Florida. And there was a group that started. Um, that were, a guy had, had read some books by Thich Nhat Hanh and the woman had gone to some retreats with this guy named Lama Surya Das, who's a, a Jewish kid from New Jersey, I think, who became a Tibetan monk. And um, so they wanted to start a group and see who was around, who would come in and practice Buddhism with them. And so my wife went to the first couple of meetings and she um, started encouraging me to come I, so I was a freelance journalist for a long time. So I was, I think I was covering commission meetings, the first couple of meetings. And so I went with her to their third meeting. And I remember leaving, getting in the car and go, to go home and saying, honey, whatever you do, don't let me end up in charge of this. And so a year later, I was in charge of it. <laughs> the, the people who started the group didn't want to continue running it. So they kind of gave me the keys to the church. They were meeting at a Unitarian church and put me in charge. So at that point, I thought, well, I need to get some formal instruction because people were showing up and expecting someone to tell them what to do. And so uh, we started going to a Thai temple down by Disney World and um, going to retreats and and getting real formal studies there from the abbot, who is still one of my best friends in the world. And um, so I ordained as a Thai monk first. Uh, in Thai Buddhism, if you're ordained, you live at the monastery, and that's that. You know, shave your head. I had a ponytail halfway down my back. I shaved my head, took the robes. Um, but they'll do temporary ordination. So my wife agreed to let me ordained for a little while. <laughs> so I ordained for a little while. As long as I figured I could take off from, from work and still have a house and car when I got back. And then, um, but after that, I felt like I, I really needed something tangible to be able to offer people who were coming to our community looking for guidance and, and leadership. And also, I had been asked to um, volunteer at the chapel at a local uh, state uh, correctional institution. There were a group of incarcerated individuals there who wanted to practice Buddhism and they weren't allowed to meet together if they didn't have a volunteer. So 
I had started going there as a volunteer and just sitting with this group. And there are things that ordained people can do. You know, we can have confidential conversations and that sort of thing. And, you know, if somebody wants to formally become a Buddhist, there's a ceremony that you can do for that and that sort of stuff. And so I started looking at Buddhist chaplaincy programs and I found a program that I could do remotely for the most part. Uh, it was based in California, but um, it grew out of the Buddhist Temple of Chicago, which was founded in the 1940s after World War II. Um, and it was um, based in Japanese Buddhism, but was non-sectarian, deliberately non-sectarian. And so I did this two-year seminary program, you could call it, and, um, and, he, and, and got the title Sensei as a uh, as a result of that. Sensei means teacher. So that's my official religious title is Sensei. Um, and that allowed me to do some of these things, weddings and funerals and refuge ceremonies. When you become a Buddhist, you do a thing called going for refuge. Um, and, but I still felt a, like a Zen Buddhist. And I had developed a fairly close relationship with the Zen community, um, but also had developed a friendship with the abbot of a Vietnamese monastery about an hour from where I live. And so I was going to this Vietnamese monastery, White Sands Buddhist Center, um, as guest for a while. And then the abbot there um, decided that he would give me Dharma transmission. He felt like I was a um, a good teacher. And so there's this thing called Dharma transmission, which is when one Zen master recognizes another Zen master, basically. And there's this sort of wordless transmission of the teachings. And so he did that for me. So, so I became a Zen master in the Rinzai Zen lineage and then ordained as a Soto Zen monk, which is, shouldn't, doesn't mean anything to anybody, but you know, it's just kind of the path I took. One of the reasons that I ordained in Soto Zen um, is that I wouldn't have to leave my wife, <laughs> which was kind of important. Um, but also um, the founder of Soto Zen is a guy named Ahi Dogen, who, who was, amazingly egalitarian with regards to things like women's roles and in the ministry and that sort of thing. And we're talking about 13th century Japan. And he was saying, you know, no difference between men and women and that kind of stuff. So there were a lot of things about him that I really liked. So, so I became a Zen monk. Um, and around the same time, there was a chaplain at Stetson University who had been there for a decade or so and he was um, sick he was in hospice and the um, hospice people asked him if he, if he'd like to see a chaplain and he said no because I know everything every chaplain ever says and I don't want to hear the cliches that I've said over and over again to other people and he said but if you can get say Morris to come visit me that would I would like that I'd met him at a couple of events at the university and so I started going, I went over and said, what do you want? And he's, he wanted me to do his end of life guidance. And so um, he became a Buddhist Baptist uh, and um, before he passed away. And um, that got me on the school's radar. So when they just were looking, trying to decide what to do to replace him, they invited me to be one of the, they replaced him with three chaplains and I was one of the three. So um, I'm in this very interfaith, multi-faith kind of environment now, which is, uh, you know, I'm very comfortable with. But it's, it's interesting challenges. It's a really powerful journey, I think. Just kind of Thanks. sounds like you navigated so many different types of belief, but also, especially I think in the Western world, learning like true Eastern belief, not just the practice, like you mentioned earlier, is quite an accomplishment. It's, that was really great to hear. Um, okay. I'm kind of curious about, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, please ask your question. Um, I was just, I was kind of curious about, um, cause you talked about the, like kind of the end of life, um, helping them through this end of life journey. And also, um, earlier in the conversation, you talked about the kind of the, there's 
or at least from what I know, there's a difference in beliefs of reincarnation between Buddhists and Hindus. I'm kind of curious what the, in Buddhism, what, what the teachings are about kind of the end of life and the cycle and the kind of what the cycle of life is, is like. Okay. So I'm going to talk from a bunch of different perspectives here. All right. Because, um, you know, I came to Buddhist Buddhism pretty much as a humanist and a lot of Americans who come to practice Buddhism are pretty humanistic. Um, I, as my practice matured, I'm still humanistic in terms of how I practice, but I do see it as something that transcends this particular lifetime. So the, the classical view, so the difference between like re, reincarnation as, as described in, um, for lack of a better term, Hinduism, and rebirth as described in Buddhism, is that in uh, sort of classical Indian view, there was a soul that was kind of a discrete thing that contained sort of the essence of me. And that soul would transmigrate from form to form. And so one of the, one of the descriptions of it in, in that particular literature is of a, that of a, the image of a caterpillar crawling from plant to plant. Same caterpillar, different plants. Same soul, different bodies. The Buddha said, he had tried to find this self that was resident somehow in here and that he didn't find it. And he said, what, what we identify as self is really form, you know, the physical stuff, the, the air and the fire and the water and you know, all that kind of stuff. And mind, you know, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and awareness and that those aggregates that, uh, that, that what I identify with as me is an aggregate of these aggregates. And so when the karma that brought this into existence, this particular form into existence, runs out, then, then those aggregates fall apart. Um, but the, the actions in this lifetime uh, kind of cling onto um, to the consciousness, and so the the clinging wants to take form. It wants to cling to stuff and take form. And so the nature of the clinging that is resident that you built up over your life when you pass away will will create will create another form. And so what form your next life is is the function of what you did in this life. So the, the, it's a lot, the metaphor is a lot more like a candle flame. If you lit a candle and let it burn, almost burn away, and then the heat as that first flame became almost extinguished, you lit another candle from it. Then you'd have another flame. It's not the same flame. The flame doesn't jump from one candle to another. But the, the energy in that flame is one of the causes for the next flame. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the difference. So um, the in sort of the pre-Buddhist view of karma was almost like predestination. There was actually multiple views in India. There was one that what you did in this life didn't affect anything, so you might as well have a good time because you know the, when it ended, that was it. It was all over. And then another view was that what you did in this life affected the next life and predetermined it. And so whatever happens to you in this life is the result of what was predetermined in the previous life. And the Buddha said, nah, you know what? I, th I think that past karma, present karma, and future karma are what's important. So you come into this moment based on what's happened in the past. You're creating karma in this moment that's going to affect your future. And the, the actions that you do in the future are going to determine, at, at, along with all of the stuff that you've already brought along with you, is going to determine your next form. So, again, if, you, if, if you're a humanistic um, and don't particularly want to believe in rebirth, you don't have to because what you do in this moment is going to affect your tomorrow, right? 
if you do good things, avoid doing bad things and train your mind, you're going to like life better in the future than you do, you know, than if you don't, that if you, uh, you know, do bad things and avoid good things and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so the cycle is the same either way. Um, so I said, so the Buddha himself was, he taught in a fairly humanistic way. So there's, there are multiple sort of canons in Buddhism. You know, the, the canonical text of Christianity is the Bible. The canonical text of Buddhism is about 15 feet of bookshelf space. And that's just the original canon. After the Buddha died, Buddhism didn't just kind of become static and stay there it encountered other cultures and stuff. So there are um, sort of more advanced, progressed, evolved versions of Buddhism, however you want to look at that, that say, okay, that, the, that when you become uh, fully enlightened, you don't just leave, you can actually become a Buddha. And so, and the Buddha himself is eternal. And so at that point, then Buddhism starts to look pretty theistic. Um, the, the original teachings were not particularly theistic. They were pretty humanistic. But if you look at the way most Asians practice and things like that, then, then you get kind of grasp this, you encounter this eternality of the Buddha that looks a lot like God. It's a little different, though, in that what we're talking about is really oneness. Everything sort of arises... Um, as a, as a function within sort of the greater whole. So where you start finding a lot of commonality with like Christian theology there is if you read something like Thomas Merton, where he talks about God as the ground of being. So when you take Buddhism to that kind of that cultural level, which is, you know, sometime after the Buddha passed away, then you start to encounter things that look very much like that. So did that help? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and that's, right. that's one thing that like, I'm really interested in is the, you know, the crossover and what aspects of like Buddhist teachings um, can go very well and pair very well with, you know, whether it be Christian doctrine, um, you know, especially within like, uh, you know, Judaism and Christianity, and looking more at like, you know, I, I'd be interested to know kind of your experience and thoughts, just like being more in the interfaith space and where you see how Buddhism and more Western religion can have a lot of, lot of ties. So um, there's a couple of levels. And one is when you, when you start to look at ways that contemplative practice can enhance uh, or contribute to your faith practice, right? Then um, I'll tell you a story. There, there was a, um, there was a priest. I think I think this was Father Robert Kennedy, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm telling the right story about the right priest. But at any rate, there was there was a period of time when the Catholic Church was um, kind of exploring ecumen. The, there was an ecumenical movement. You know, they're kind of looking for a lot of common ground. And so there's this priest who went to a um, uh, a Zen retreat several day retreat with a number of other priests and, and other people and so on. And so he was, um, the way these are structured, you spend a lot of time sitting in meditation. You do a little bit of group chanting in the morning, a sort of a religious service at the beginning of the day, you do some mindful work and, you know, things like that. But a part of the process is that you get to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the teacher who's leading the retreat. And so there was a, a uh, fairly famous Japanese guy who was leading this particular retreat. And this priest came in on his first day to meet with this Roshi. And he said, you know, I'm a Jesuit priest. And, and uh, the ro Roshi is a uh, means teacher, Zen master. Um, and the, the Roshi says, oh, okay. And so they talk a little bit and the Roshi says, okay, well, let me give you a koan. So a koan is kind of a story that doesn't quite make sense logically, but it's really designed to kind of get you to stop thinking and analyzing and just kind of experience with your heart. So he said, um, 
what were Jesus's last words? And the priest said, Father, why have you forsaken me? And the Roshi says, no, and rings the bell, which is the signal for him to get up and leave. So he gets up and leaves. And he goes back and he's meditating and he's thinking, I'm pretty sure that's right. And so that night, you know, he looks it up and he's like, yeah, yeah Father, why, why have you forsaken me? And so the next day he gets his one-on-one -on -one with, with the Roshi and Roshi goes, well, did you think about it? And he says, yeah. It, he said, I even looked it up. It's Father, why have you forsaken me? And the Roshi goes, no, rings his bell. He leaves. And so this goes on for the whole, like, I don't know how many days the retreat was. Probably, it was probably a five-day retreat. That's pretty typical. And so on the last day, he comes in to have his one-on-one -on -one with the Roshi. And the Roshi goes, well, what do you, what do you think? Did you, do you have anything else to say? And he goes, no. He says, I know that's what he said. What is it you're looking for from me? And this little Japanese guy leans back and throws his arms open and yells to the heavens, which I'm not going to do because I don't want to blow out everybody's radios when you're listening to this. Father, why have you forsaken me? You know, and he says this with all his power and emotion and tears streaming down his eyes. And the priest gets, ah, oh, he wanted me to know what that was, you know, to feel that for myself, to experience that, that that's the depth of this sacrifice and to make this connection there and so he walked out going you know this little Japanese guy was trying to make me a better Christian you know which um, by having me experience what it was what it means not just to be a Christian but to you know to live that that to live that and so you know that's one way that you can you can bring Buddhism and the, the practice of Buddhism to experiencing you know what it means to practice your faith, whatever your faith is. And there's a, um, there, I mentioned Thich Nhat Hanh. He's written a couple of books. Um, one of them is called um, uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ. One of them is called Going Home, Jesus and Buddha's Brothers. Uh, he, he actually got to know Thomas Merton. And so he, you know, really um, got his view of Christianity. And so he, he kind of considered himself um, to be both at, at some point. And then Father Robert Kennedy um, has written a book called Zen Gifts for Christians. And there's some others out there. There's a book that I can't think of the name of. It's about how to be a Jewish and Buddhist. And so a, there's a lot of books out there now on, on that kind of thing. But, um, you know, like I said, we're totally, you know, if you walk into one of my meetings, I have absolutely zero desire to convert you. You know, I, I want to, to help you find your path. And that's really kind of what we do is help people find their path. So, um, you know, to explore that, I would say just start practicing. Yeah, I really like that. That's one thing I noticed that always, especially from my background of having like a very consequential faith of like do it right or, you know, it's you know, everything is lost. It's, it's, it's cool to see that in Buddhism, at least from what I've seen of, the, um, well, this is what we think would really help you out. And like, this is what would be best for you. But if you go to a different path, like we're not gonna tell you not to do that. Like, I don't know. It's, it's a very comforting way of thought. It seems. Yeah. Well, you know, being realistic, I mean, you'll find people who'll, who'll say, Oh, this is the way we do that. And this is the right way, you know, because Buddhists are human beings too. So, you know, you're going to meet people who are, who are really attached to that, to their practice. But it's kind of built into Buddhism to not attach to anything, including your practice. So, you know, it's maybe less common than, than some other religions might be. The other thing I'll say, though, is that when you, I find as I talk to people from other faiths, that first of all, every, the major religions are major religions because they contain a lot of wisdom and, and compassion and kindness and you know those kinds of things and so um there's always at least that much common ground but the other thing is when you find people who are really grounded in their faith they've really used their faith to get to uh, a, a deeper more spiritual relationship with the world 
you're talking, it doesn't matter what faith they are. You're talking to the same people, you know, you're, it's, it's really hard to put this into words, but I, I, you know, I have friends who are Sikh. I have friends who are Catholic. I have friends, you know, and, and once we're talking as people of faith, we're talking the same language, even though we come from different traditions. There's a, I can't think of the guy's name. There's a, there's a, there's a theology guy out there who's identified, I think, six stages of faith in the highest stage of faith. Basically, you've transcended your faith. And, and so you're having the same conversation with everybody, regardless. So, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, when you put that kind of effort, the way you were describing, sort of do it right and do it right in a way where you're really connecting to, um, to, to the greater purpose and meaning and the greater reality of life, then, you know, when you get to that level, uh, you know, Zen master, Catholic priest, whatever, it's all the same thing. Yeah, I really like that. And I think that's one thing we've even seen just like on our podcast, talking with people, you know, is like the more you kind of dive into these different faith practices and just like talking about spirituality, I think you really start to realize that we're all more similar than we are different. Um, you know, and, and it's like every, every faith is kind of trying to get people to like the same destination in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to like mindset and how we just interact with our, the physical world. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested, you know, for your journey and kind of just, you know, being able to experience all these different people and faith practices, um, you know, what, I guess, like, on a personal level, like, what has Buddhism, you know, brought to you, like, as far as just, like, you know, I, mean, I know that's a really loaded question, uh, <laughs> but, you know, just, like, what what has it meant for you personally, and how has it benefited your life? So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a human being. Human beings come into this life carrying baggage from, you know, whether you want to look at it as previous lives or or, you know, hardwired, uh, you know, genetic tendencies or whatever. I mean, I was, uh, I had alcohol issues. I had, you know, drugs were a big deal when I was in high school. And, and uh, uh, so I got into that, but then I decided I like drinking better. And, um, you know, and it uh, took me to places that were not places you want to go. And so uh, Buddhism I mentioned the Unitarian minister uh, who had been on the retreat, you know, as I was kind of, I had quit drinking and was trying to kind of figure out where to go from there. Um, that was about the time that she started that group. And so it gave me not just community, but it gave me uh, a sense of um, practice, you know, direction. I was not a good candidate for AA um, because of my, general humanistic slant um but buddhism was you know fit in okay with that um and uh i the um i would say if it weren't for buddhism i probably wouldn't be here really i mean it, honestly i you know, we're, like I said, you know, we come into this life carrying the baggage and then we're born in a certain place, you know, at a certain time uh, to certain parents. And my father was a very violent alcoholic and stuff like that. So having a, a practice, um, having Buddhism as a, as a refuge has really helped me to resolve a lot of things that, um, that happened in my childhood and so on that I don't know what I would have done otherwise with that stuff. I probably wouldn't have lived because the alternative for me was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right. So, um, I still play a little rock and roll, but it's in a different context than it would have been back then. I'd have probably been one of those dead at 27 guys really. Um, but today, you know, it's, it, uh, it has been a long journey, but, and I'm just happier. I noticed one day, this was probably 10 years ago or so, I was standing in line at the supermarket waiting for, uh, I was, I was going to get subs for my wife and I. And uh, 
the guy making sandwiches, there was only one guy making sandwiches and he was very slow. And I was kind of looking around and everybody else was just so annoyed and they were kind of shuffling their feet and they were doing those things all the time. And it was just, you know, the tension was just almost tangible. You know, you could almost feel it. And I was pretty happy being where I was. And I realized, you know, that there was a time when I was a very much a type A person and I would have been probably the worst one in, in line there. But because of my practice, I was able to be pretty comfortable just being in the present moment, whatever was, whatever was going on in the present moment. It was no big deal. I was, um, I was leaving the, uh, the prison one day and uh, the people in the, in the uh, control room were in no hurry to let me out. And, um, uh, it, and it occurred to me that it would do me absolutely no good, absolutely no good to get irritated, right? Because the more irritated I got, the less concerned they would have been <laughs> right, about, about my mood. And, and I thought, well, it's really nice to have this, um, this patience, you know, and be able to recognize that and to not be freaked out about all the other things I have to do and how unfairly I'm being treated and all that kind of junk. I would have just been making myself miserable. Um, so, you know, I, I actually, I wish I had developed that degree of patience when I was younger, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's the way, uh, that's the way life is sometimes. Yeah. And I feel like that's also such a commonality with a lot of faith is kind of that like redemptive quality that like faith can bring you. Um, and not to go totally like on a different tangent, but you know, you've brought up a few times about, you know, working with people who are incarcerated. Um, and I had a little bit of an experience with that, um, just like more in a Christian context, but I am interested, you know, from your perspective and experience, you know, for people who are, you know, have, have done bad things and we've all done bad things or just, you know, at very difficult times and dark times in their life, um, you know, as being kind of a, a leader and a teacher, um, how have you seen Buddhism really help, you know, people who are incarcerated or struggling, struggling with addiction and things like that? Um, well, first, I will say that the statistics show that any religious program uh, any faith reduces the risk of recidivism or reduces the recidivism rate. So, and I think that there are things about religion in general, religious programs in general, there's a community, there are people who accept you as you are, you know, that's a, the kind of the one thing I find a lot of it by talking to inmates is that they never really felt accepted by anybody. And by the way, I, I used the, I used that term out of habit, but because they use it in the prison system. But I try to say incarcerated people. You know, we don't we don't categorize them that way. But anyway, um, they I find that you know most of the ones who come to our meetings come in saying, so I'm you know I'm. It, this this in a dorm with this guy over here who seems to be so laid back all the time and he seems to be very comfortable and pretty happy and you know easy going and all of that and I want to know what his secret is and he said he's a Buddhist so here I am you know it just it makes it possible for them to um, I think it makes them better um, people generally better behaved people they're not perfect certainly that I end up with one in confinement now and then and that sort of thing. But generally I think they act out a little bit less. And so they create less stress for themselves and it makes it easier for them to accept these really unpleasant circumstances that they're in, you know, and it's the most rewarding thing I do really. I mean, you know, we talk about suffering and most of the time we're talking about, you know, when we're talking to um, the average American, that's kind of an abstract, idea really but when you're talking to people who are literally not free physically free and who can have everything taken away from them in a heartbeat and you know it's it really uh, makes this idea of suffering a lot more tangible it makes it i think your practice a lot more 
urgent in a way. You know, you really take it more seriously, I think, when you see what suffering can really look like. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I, I feel like those, those are the people that could use it the most too, that could really use a hope and a way to gain control over their lives and themselves. Um, <clears throat> and this has been a really powerful conversation. I really hate to start wrapping it up because um, I, I mean, I've truly enjoyed this uh, a lot, but I'm just curious to, to start wrapping it up. What, what would be a big uh, takeaway for our listeners? That, what would be the one takeaway, if you could, for listeners that you'd want them to, to hold on to? Well, you know, do good, avoid evil, train your mind. You have a lot of opportunities to do that these days. The upside of living in a global pandemic is that there's an awful lot of online activity right now. So if you want to explore Buddhism, it's probably easier now than it's ever been. Um, and you know you don't have to you don't have to renounce the you know the faith that you've been practicing in order to incorporate some of these principles, you know. So um, just do it. You don't have to know a lot. Just start. You know that's and start where you are. You you are who you are. You don't have to change in order to practice a spiritual uh, path of any kind. And um, you know. Times of great difficulty are the times that motivate us to move toward freedom. And, you know, so this is a good time to do that. Thank you so much for listening, folks. If you want, if you like that episode, I'm going to stop there. Thank you so much for listening, folks. If you like that episode, please check out morris's book it is the it is what you need if you're looking to learn the basics of buddhism his book is wisdom compassion serenity first steps on the buddhist path it'd be perfect for you it's perfect for us and it's what we need right now uh, also if you like that episode please keep tuning in subscribe to our channel to hear more interviews and hear more people's stories and discussions around uh the places faith and spirituality takes us. We're now releasing episodes every other week, so that way we can spend more time editing and trying to have a higher quality of episode um, since we're balancing it with these other parts of just living life. So we're really looking forward to our next episode, and we'll see you then.